Welcome into the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. Just a warning at the beginning of the podcast, there's going to be a lot of information covered. We haven't done a podcast in a while because of the holidays and all the news that was coming out of the football program podcast that we would have recorded would have probably been outdated as soon as we recorded them. So we're going to have a lot of information for you. Get comfy, grab some popcorn. I'm Ethan Ryder. Joined alongside me is Chris Cartman. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Happy New Year, Ethan. So nice to uh, be on a podcast with you again. It sure is. Also joined by Noah Furtado. How are you doing today, Noah? Good, man. It's good to see you. Haven't seen you in a bit, so appreciate it. Yeah, I gotta it. say, your, your haircut's changed since the last time I saw you. It completely grew out. It's not buzz anymore. You going back to it or you sticking with the longer hair? I just went from the buzz cut look to cleaning it up with the fade, and that's that's it's all history now. I don't think I'm ever going back to the buzz cut, unfortunately. Never going back. So we got to... You know, limited time, limited edition Noah Furtado buzz cut era that we were able to to live through. So good to know that that we were able to live through that period of time. But anyways, let's move on to some of the stuff that we got to talk about today. The coaching staff has now been finalized under Kenny Dillingham. It's an opportunity to do interviews with all of them, Chris, that have been a lot of information going out through interviews that you have done uh, throughout the media as well. Gotten a sense of kind of their roles and what they should provide to the program. So what are your kind of thoughts in terms of just the coaching staff and how Dillingham has brought everyone together? Well, yeah, I'm actually uh, been quite impressed. Um, you look at Dillingham as the youngest coach in the country, and some of the questions that people will have are about um, the the people who have that type of experience, whether he has people that he can sort of lean on and ask for advice or get some perspective on. Well, Charlie Rago was a head coach the last season at, at Idaho State. He's one of the older guys on the staff. Um, and then Bo Baldwin has been a head coach at multiple FCS programs, including most recently at Cal Poly. That's his offensive coordinator. Um, uh, so, you know, he has two former head coaches. Sean Aguano was the interim head coach, right, who's coaching running backs at ASU. And then Brian Ward is is also one of the older guys on the staff. I think he's 50 years old. Um, which is not old by any stretch, but it's a very young staff. I think is one of the things you could take from that. But he's you know been been a, a coordinator and has a lot of coaching experience. Um, all the interviews that we did, you can find them on our on our YouTube channel, Son of a Source video. Uh, if you want to watch, there's like ten minute segments on, on on all of them. But I think one of the most impressive things about it for me was when you get in, in interact with coaches on that sort of a level, and a lot of them I already knew, but probably half of them or so I, I, I hadn't met in person before, interacted with. And there's some really young ones. Uh, Rashad Samples is you know mid-20s, and he was the youngest position coach in the NFL. And I didn't really know A.J. Cooper, the linebacker's coach, who's, who is originally from the Valley, grew up here. Um, the thing that impressed me so much was – Normally, on a lot of the the prior whatever it is, four coaching staffs that I've covered at ASU, maybe five. I don't lost track. Um, the the you 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 might have one or two guys on the staff that you go, okay, well this guy he's really really impressive and polished, and he has a, a presence and a chance to become a head coach. Well, I look at this staff, and it was like one guy after another impressed me enough to make me think that they could become Division One head coaches. And they already have two, and Guano. And then who was interim? And then Brian Ward absolutely could be a Division One head coach. AJ Cooper super polished and impressive. Uh, Brian Carrington is still in his twenties and he's coaching uh, ASU corners. He had been the recruiting coordinator at TCU. He has a lot of 
uh, you know, uh, dynamic, you know, uh, attributes that I think project well to his ability to maybe have that, that upside. Uh, Rashad Samples, anyone who's was the youngest position coach in the NFL, uh, certainly has that, that type of potential. And then like Jason Mons, I, I'm, I look at him and I'm like, well, wow. Like years ago, I was thinking this guy should have already been an offensive coordinator and he's still in his forties and is, uh, easily could be offensive coordinator and maybe even become a head coach. So uh, pretty much across the board, I see guys who are extremely impressive, smart. This staff is uh, unlike any of the previous ASU staffs in how locally homegrown and, and, or um, uh, just aware of the particular challenges that exist at ASU which I think puts them far ahead of the curve of others. What has happened historically at ASU is coaching staffs get hired. They really don't know what it's like at ASU or even necessarily maybe in the region and or the conference. They take some years to figure that out as they're going along. And then in that time period, uh, they have already kind of missed an opportunity in a lot of ways. And then they try to play catch up and fix the, the areas where they've neglected or they didn't really understand and then it never really works. And then all of them end up getting fired. But when Kenny Dillingham, I've known him for nine years. I've I've talked to him many times, extremely smart, sharp guy, but also he understands recruiting in, in the Valley. He understands recruiting in the region. He understands the types of players that are important to get at ASU and why and how. He has a scheme that uh, is very contemporary and modern and will be able to compete with everybody in the conference. He understands how to build a staff to be able to compete with everybody in the conference. And I think even to be able to recruit both from transfers and locally, which ASU needs to do a better job of. And you put it all together and it's a recipe that gives them a chance to be successful, not by any stretch of given, but it gives them a absolutely a chance. And there's some things that they still don't have as that, that are a little bit of questions such as are they going to be able to recruit California at a high level in high school? You know, I think that is a little bit to be determined. And then the other thing would be is, are they going to be able to get enough of what they need institutionally from ASU, which has always been a big problem. Things move glacial and there's a lot of red tape and there's like uh, budget limitations and all these things. If, if they can, if they can figure out their way to navigate through those things, I think they have a chance to be extremely successful. I think uh, the the schemes are going to be good. Um, I think that they understand the types of players that they probably need to have. And I think that they're going to be able to connect well with their players. And, and they seem to be just like good, honest, nice guys, which also kind of goes a long way. Yeah, and let, let's go specifically into the offense. There's been a lot of conversations in terms of offensive play calling and what the offense may look like now that Kenny Dillingham is the head coach and has been kind of parts of offensive, uh, parts of teams that he's been at. Bo Baldwin now going to be the offensive coordinator. So what do you know in regards to offensive play calling, what this offense might look like? So ASU fans are going to have a better idea about what this offense will look like than probably any of the recent offenses after a coaching change. And that is because Kenny Dillingham was mentored uh, a by Mike Norvell, who was ASU's offensive coordinator under Todd Graham. Uh, they had three really good seasons. 
I always I lost track four seasons, whatever it was, under Mike Norvell, uh, going back, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago, and uh, or ten years ago, I guess almost now, and um, and so I asked Kenny Dillingham, what percentage of your offense is, is Mike Norvell's offense, right? And he said sixty-five to seventy percent. That's a lot. That's a that's a lot. So. And Mike Norvell, in my opinion, was ASU's best offensive coordinator that we've seen in recent decades, probably closely followed by Billy Napier, okay? Uh, and this is like post-Dirk Cutter, because obviously he was very good. So, But, but Dirk Cutter and, and Mike Norvell, probably the most impressive to me. What? And then when you add in the, the uh, Bo Baldwin, he's going to be the play caller, but he's going to be the play caller of – an offense that is going to be Dillingham's as a direct lineage of Mike Norvell's. And there's no way that those coaches would be working together unless they had a very similar ideology, what they like to do. Okay. And what that really primarily centers around is RPO actions that are, are dynamic. Okay. They want to be able to run the ball effectively with the ability to have passing options out of those run plays, depending upon how teams decide they're going to try to defend that, those actions. And what they like to do is they like to have safety valves, offshoots, third kind of options, which evolve what they're doing a little bit more than what a lot of other more simplified things are. So, it, it's not a NFL offense, quote unquote, per se, but the NFL is actually doing a lot of more of this stuff anyways now, but it's something that is quarterback friendly. It works well with quarterback mobility in terms of moving the pocket, going off platform, giving quarterbacks the ability to run the ball as part of options. Um, and it doesn't require quarterbacks to be tethered to the pocket, having to go through a bunch of progression reads and all that stuff that makes things a little bit more dense and difficult for them to pick up. Um, and tempo is very important in this offense. They want to play really fast. They want to get the ball rolling downfield. They want to get defenses on their heels. They're willing to hit you with the same play over and over again just to see if you can come up with a solution for it. Um it's going to be very wide open. They, it's, it's a, it's a mostly a 11 personnel, one tight end, one running back, but they use the, the tight end flexed out kind of all over the field. He has the ability to be basically like a receiver. Jalen Conyers, right. Is a receiver in a lot of ways. Um, and they're going to go vertical. They're going to throw the ball. They're going to get you into some things that create challenges for the secondary to figure out who's covering what guy and, and, and what you need to do to be able to stop this in his own and need to overhang defender is going to have a hard time figuring out whether he needs to crash down to help the run or hang back because there, there might, there might be a slant that's coming quickly into his area on a quick pull and throw. And when you package all these things together, you get something that can be very impressive looking, especially if you have the right skill players to execute it. Let's flip over to the other side of the ball with defense. Brian Ward, defensive coordinator. What do you know about the defense that he may be putting onto the field as a Sun Devil? This is a very impressive scheme that Brian Ward utilizes. Um, at Washington State, they were probably either the best or second best defense in the conference 
in 2022 relative to the talent that they had that they were able to utilize. Trent Bray's defense at Oregon State was the other really great defense um, relative to talent. I think Utah always does a great job on defense, and of course, but they have better talent than Oregon State and Washington State. Washington State was right among the very top in the conference in the most important categories, which is like points allowed per possession, points per play, um, you know, run defense. They were in the top three. Scoring defense, they were in the top three. Um, and how do they do it? Basically, is it's a four-two-five defense. Um, they are vast majority of the time going to have be be with a nickel. They use the, the the fifth defensive back as a corner, but he has to be versatile enough to get in there and uh, help against the run, covering man. Um, they they are very aggressive in terms of how they present their fronts. And what I mean by that is they go to a lot of mug type fronts where they bring linebackers and even maybe defensive backs up to the line of scrimmage. And the the offensive protectors, they don't know which one of those, who of those guys are coming in terms of pressuring, who is going to drop off and play man and or play zone. And so it's, they blitz a lot, but you don't exactly know who's going to be blitzing where they're going to be coming from. And Ward likes to talk about a three-way goes up front. And what that means is, okay, this, this defensive lineman, he could come right at me. He could go to the left. He could go to the right, right? It's asymmetric in terms of how the pressures might come. Like guys could be moving in different directions. You, you can be trying to get two guys into, into one gap. You can be trying to open up gaps. By with with sort of decoy guys to be able to wrap other other players around, you can be overloading the edges because you bring defensive backs and linebackers coming on overloads. You create a lot of problems. And what they but at the same time, what I think is the most impressive about it is for as aggressive as they are, which is one of the more aggressive in the conference, they don't give up a lot of big plays over the top of their defense, and that is because they're very assignment sound. And they do a very good job of being able to bail out and cover in man coverage, coupled with their ability to get to the quarterback to create pressure. And uh, Kane Dillingham called it a, a, a havoc defense. They create a lot of havoc. They, they make it difficult for opposing coordinators and quarterbacks to know exactly what they're going to get on any given play and how they should be able to respond to that down-distance situation so i think asu fans are going to really like this defense especially contrasting against how conservative and how uh frankly poor that asu's previous uh uh, coaches were at utilizing their personnel and figuring out uh how they could generate pressure and uh and get the most out of their players and you talked a little bit about it, but in terms of strength and weaknesses from this coaching staff, it's Arizona heavy. And there's a lot of big Arizona high school coaches that are on this and people, coaches that have been in and around the Arizona kind of place and have been with these players that are through Arizona and has been with Kenny Dillingham as well. So what do you think about the composition of the staff in terms of strengths and weaknesses it might have? Well, um, look, they have been very successful at getting what I call bounce back players who left Arizona uh, to go to other colleges and then decided, oh, hey, like 
I've already done that. It wasn't exactly what I hoped it would be, or I didn't get a, an immediate opportunity to, to start. And then they're transferring back. And that that's a big deal, right? When you look at their roster, you go, oh, um, you know, Bram Walden, he was the number one recruit in his class in Arizona. He went to Oregon, didn't, you know, didn't play right away. Decided, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to bounce back to ASU, right? Um, you know, you, you look at, you look at Tristan Monday. He went to Wisconsin uh, out of Saguaro and you now he's coming back. Crew Jackson went to Kansas State, decided, okay, I'm going to come back. Jake Smith, he played at Texas and USC. He's coming back. Tate Romney was at BYU. He's coming back. Jacob Conover, also BYU. He's coming back. All these guys were like basically, um, you know, in the top 10 to 15 of their respective recruiting classes in Arizona. And what's happening is we're moving away from the, the needing to sign 25 high school kids in a class uh, and then expect like a bunch of them to end up working out for you. You're going to end up with smaller high school classes and more transfers, maybe even a majority of your, of your people being transfers. And what I think Kenny Dillingham understands is a lot of times you're recruiting the kids in high school to get them the second time, not the first time. That's something that Herm Edwards and all his staff, they had no, they had no interest, no idea. They were way, way behind. They didn't get it. So that is important, especially because there are no really successful teams in uh, Power 5 football that aren't really good at recruiting their home turf. If you don't get a bunch of your best players, a majority of your best players from within 500, 600 miles, if you have the opportunity to do that, you're in deep trouble. Like that doesn't work, right? Now, they are going to have to figure out a way to recruit in Southern California. I think that the the departures of USC and UCLA to the Big Ten could help them in that regard because um, a lot of families aren't, you know, either A, um, you know, they, they, they will maybe be able to beat uh, a UCLA or something for some guys because the families are going to be able to see them play a lot more. Right. Or maybe they won't beat them, but they have to then figure out a way to beat the the other teams in the conference to get those guys. Like ASU has to figure out a way to get the guys that it wants at Southern California who otherwise might go to Colorado, Utah, Oregon, Washington. And if they're able to do that with the whole idea of, hey, Arizona's a four or five hour drive from the Inland Empire, which is the talent rich part of Southern California. There's no other place. There's no closer school that you're going to be able to get to to drive out and watch your watch your watch your son play, uh, and you're going to be able to go to all the road games because they're all on the, they're all on the West Coast. That is a possible recipe for being able to o- overcome, which is w- a staff that is not particularly heavy. And then the other thing they can do is they can develop relationships with seven on seven coaches and all that. And I think I, I I've heard some things that indicate that they're kind of on a pathway to being able to do that, but. Um, the biggest questions, as I said earlier, it's going to be more related to a lot of the infrastructure challenges that previous coaches have had. And then, you know, Dillingham, he, he's a first-year coach, and he really was only calling plays for one year prior to that as a coordinator. And so there's, you know, things are going to ha- going to have to be learned about where he's exactly at and his evolution in those areas. Yeah, you touched a little bit on recruiting. Let's go kind of dive headfirst into into what's happening. We had a podcast around this time last year, Chris, where we talked about unprecedented and a bunch of moving pieces. 
and it seems to only be crazier this year. ASU signed 15 high school and junior college players in the first signing period, currently has 24 D1 transfers that are either enrolled or committed to enroll into the university, which is currently most in the country. They have 40 players right now who are currently committed to joining ASU's roster this year or have already enrolled, which is an ASU modern record and probably an all-time record. ASU will most likely have the fewest number of returning scholarship players probably of all time, because with all of these incoming players, that means there's less scholarships to be had and some players are going to leave. And there's a lot of players leaving for the transfer portal, Chris. So this is an insane amount of movement and a little amount of time. So have you seen anything like this before? It seems pretty unprecedented. Uh, this is actually quite mind-blowing to me. Um, I've covered ASU recruiting professionally for 20 years, right? And if you had told me even like, let's say three or four years ago that I was going to be covering an ASU team that was half new players, half new scholarship players, I would have said, you're crazy. That There's no way that's going to happen. There's no way I would have said, you are nuts. Okay. They had a rule up until literally this year, this class, that you could only enroll 25 new scholarship players. And they suspended that rule in absolutely perfect time for ASU because Kenny Dillingham inherited a situation where he absolutely needed to add at least in the high 30s of new players. There's like no other way around it. ASU, when you look at the roster currently, they, they are going to have no more than, let's say, 45, 46 returning scholarship players. Six of those players were former walk-ons. Half of them are not going to probably play at ASU much, if, if at all. Two others are pretty good. You know, you'd like, you know, I think everybody kind of knows that um, you, one of their top receivers last year and their starting quarterback for much of the year were former walk-ons. So, okay, that, that's impressive. But – the but the 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 dire situation that Dillingham inherited because the prior staff had done very little recruiting in 18 months. They were just like, hey, do you want a scholarship to ASU for a year or two? Okay, cool. Why don't you come? I mean, like that that shouldn't be happening. And it created a very bad situation. I I Dillingham was hired on like the 27th or 28th of November. Right. And he from then until like a week ago or like maybe this week, last weekend, he was he averaged like one new player a day. Like that doesn't make any that it doesn't ASU's never had any any period of time where they even added 20 players in that much amount of time. And they did. 40-ish players almost in that amount of time. A few of those guys were already committed who were high school guys. So not everyone, but the vast majority. So this is totally nuts, totally unprecedented. I've never been able to – I can't even wrap my mind around it. I, I, I haven't watched film on half of these guys yet because I've been way too busy to be doing that. There's a lot that we're going to have to unpack here, like in the coming weeks. It's going to take a while. We just literally crammed – a year's worth of activity into six weeks. And I've already stressed out not thinking I can do everything that I need to do in a year in recruiting. And now here it is. Boom. So um, 
I think it's important to say that a lot of these kids are not going to work out. You can't just add 40 kids and then be like, yeah, they're all going to go out there and be really good players. They're not. You know, you don't, ASU doesn't even necessarily need that. ASU needs probably 20 something of them to end up being really good players. And then the other ones, if they're good character kids and they're, they're, you know, good in the locker room and they do a good job on the practice field, you're probably going to be fine. They're locals. If you're going to make a mistake, hey, make a mistake in areas where you get some goodwill, which is with some of these local players coming back home, right? They had um, like six guys who are freshmen who are returning. So you also have to balance out your classes, give you some guys who are developmental players that maybe you hope two or three years from now have a chance to compete and help you out. And I think that they've been honest with the, with, with the players about all that stuff. But no, nothing like this. It just goes to show you how much of a rebuild that really ASU is that Dillingham and his staff inherited. Yeah, if anyone was listening to the podcast at the beginning and was a little confused at why we haven't done a podcast in a little while, this is it. Chris has never seen anything like this before, so it's something that he's never had to cover before in terms of this much and this little amount of time. So there was a lot of work that had to be done behind the scenes that made a podcast pretty hard to do, let alone the fact that they would have been outdated as soon as we recorded them. But we will, speaking of podcasts, have a premium podcast. It's going to have in-depth position-by-position breakdown of what every position looks like with all of these new incomings. But for this podcast, Chris, we'll just talk a little bit about some of the big talking points and what they might mean for the team with all of these new additions. So first, we'll go to offense. Two quarterbacks brought in, including Drew Pine from Notre Dame. Five offensive linemen that have the possibility of starting a prominent FCS running back and a lot of wide receiver help as well. So a lot of guys outgoing, but a lot of guys incoming as well. So what are your thoughts on where the offense stands right now? Well, it's quite quite good shape, actually, all things considered. And I think it's important to say is when you add, when you keep Elijah Badger and Jalen Conyers and Geo Sanders and Trenton Bourget, that puts you in a pretty good situation. And Messiah Swinson, I shouldn't really even leave him out. So you have two good receivers, one of the best in the Pac-12. You have two good tight ends, one of the best in the Pac-12. And you have a quarterback who at least is probably would be like a mid-tier Pac-12 starting quarterback when healthy, which he really wasn't last year. Um, That is a pretty good starting point. But then they lose so much of their offensive line talent, right? Ladarius Henderson transfers to Michigan State. Ben Scott transfers to Nebraska. And then they also lost. Chris Martinez and Des Holmes, right? Um, that's That puts you into a difficult situation. So they went out and they got a bunch of actually really good uh, players. They got, um, I would say, probably at least four guys who I would expect to come in and, and start right away or compete for starting jobs on their offensive line. And then the quarterback position, they now have a major competition now. Because Drew Pine, he was 8-2 and two as a starter at Notre Dame in his one year. Uh, that's pretty good to to have him competing with Trenton Bourget. And then on top of that, you have Jacob Conover, who is absolutely one of the best quarterbacks in recent Arizona history. He won like three straight championships. The guy was an operator. So, uh, and he's now a three few years removed because he went to a, a church mission. So he's an older, more mature guy as well. So you immediately inject great competition at quarterback. If Bourget beats those guys out, you know that he's do- looking really good. 
if Drew Pine beats those guys out, you know he's looking really good. Like that's that's a really good situation. And then what they added uh, to supplement their passing attack, which I said earlier is going to be really a really big thing under Dillingham and, and Bo Baldwin. So, and when, when they have Elijah Badger and Geo Sanders and Jalen Conyers is they went out and got receivers like um, Xavier Gulleroy was a top receiver at Idaho state. And he's one of the top uh, transfer additions that they've added. And then uh, they got Melquan Stovall, who was a starting slot receiver uh, at Colorado state. So um, they, Jake Smith is a guy who was like one of the, he was the Arizona he was a Gatorade player of the year in high school. Now it's going back four years, five years, whatever it was. He went to Texas. He looked good as a really good as a freshman. He looked like he was going to be a star. Then he had injuries. He transferred to USC. More injuries, never played at USC. But to have that guy who might end up, he's like maybe your fifth or sixth guy, but then he has this big upside that puts you into a really, really uh, advantageous situation. And then there's others on top of that that we're not even mentioning. And then you have, I think, in uh, Cameron Scadaboo, who was at Sacramento State, he had like almost 1,400 rushing yards last year, which was like fifth or sixth in FCS. You have somebody that has a chance to be a workhorse to help you replace the departure of Xavion Valade and Daniel Ngata. And then they went and got a Ngata sort of like player in the Carlos Brooks, right? Don't count out Tevin White. I think Tevin White has a chance to really improve, and he's a guy who might end up being as good as any of these guys at running back. I think he probably has the most upside overall. But then, oh, the offensive lineman, I mentioned Aaron Frost. I mean, you know, somebody told me that he had a chance to be around five to seven NFL draft pick last year, but then he got hurt, uh, decided not to enter the draft, then he got hurt and wasn't able to play. He comes in and he competes at right tackle for you. Uh, they got UNLV starting center for the last three years to replace Ben Scott. Like that's a really high quality addition. They got Ben Coleman, who's a starting guard at Cal, who who will replace Ladarius Henderson, right? So you put those guys coupled with uh, Isaiah Glass and Emmett Bowley, and now all of a sudden it looks like you got a chance to actually have a pretty good offensive line um so their offense to me looks like as long as they figure out how to coalesce with all these new pieces and introduce their offense and get get some good momentum um with that early in the year with how much new that they have they should be a better offense probably uh overall this coming season than they were the last season and we all know that um they had some potency especially after um, uh, Glenn Thomas was relieved of his play calling duties and Sean Aguana took over offensively. Yeah. And, and what's really interesting is you talk about it being unprecedented. You go to the defense and it almost feels like you're copying and pasting the same exact thing where a lot of guys are leaving. You have a lot of needs for certain positions, but they brought in a lot of guys that could possibly start. So in your eyes, what is the state of the defense right now? Yeah, it's not it's not as good as the offense, but all things considered, it's not in bad shape. I think that they have some obvious areas where they need additional help, especially defensive tackle. That would be number one for sure. Uh, you know, losing Omar Norman Lott as a transfer and the departures that they had to 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 exhaust eligibility, 
uh, that's a big deal. Like they lost, a, they lost a lot there. They don't have as much returning guys that I think are, are particularly promising. I, I think they also need probably another linebacker if they could get one that fits what they're trying to do schematically. Um, and the secondary, I think they're a little bit better off based upon kind of what they've done recently. And that's primarily because they added um, uh, one of USC's more promising uh, 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 safeties, actually. Uh, a guy who, as a freshman uh, two years ago, Damian Alford, he came on and he started multiple games. He had two interceptions against two interceptions in ASU's loss to USC um, 2021. Then he had um, some injury issues. He didn't really play last year. But but with Corey Bethley leaving, Chris Edmonds returning, Jordan Clark returning, you add Davion Alford into that mix, and that 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 gives you a, a pretty solid opportunity. And then they also added Shamari Simmons. He's I think the most recent transfer addition. Um, he was at Austin P, which is okay. It's a it's a low D one, but he was a a all conference player there. He was like one of the top two or three safeties in the league. So now he gives you a depth option. Uh, to compete. And remember, ASU is returning Roe Torrance and Ed Woods and Jordan Clark, as I mentioned, in addition to uh, Chris Edmonds. So they, I think in their secondary, they're a little bit further along than they are at some of the other positions. They did add at linebacker uh, a guy who was one of their, he wasn't a starter, but he was like their their best backup, Travion Brown, who's a veteran guy who has a chance to fill one of those interior linebacker positions um, I think Will Schaefer has a chance to play a lot of linebacker as a returner. And then they added Crew Jackson, as I mentioned earlier, who's a linebacker who's been, I guess, two years out of college now. But they probably need somebody else there. Uh, Prince Dorba from Texas is a guy who's a, a twitchy athlete. He hasn't really played much. He's a little sleeper and what they can maybe get from him from an edge presence uh, type of a guy. Tristan Monday is a defensive end that they added. Uh, they also uh, added Samuel Benjamin from Idaho State as a as a defensive end, um, and inside they added added Deshaun Mallory, who played a lot for Michigan State the last couple of years, and not as much this last season, but he's a big body that I think helps them. They 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 still need one or two more defensive tackles, one or two more linebackers, and then I think that they're pretty close to being in decent shape. Yeah, it seems like with all the additions and all the outgoings, it can be a little confusing maybe for kind of fans trying to figure out where the team stands right now. Of course, as we talked about, we'll go more in depth into this in the premium podcast, but just kind of on the surface of things, what does this team still need to accomplish in terms of recruiting? And when does that stuff really need to get done for it to be successful? Right. Yeah, we're going to save a lot of this for the premium. But um, as I said, there's there's. Right now, there's going to be somewhere between probably high 30s to low 40s returning scholarship players. There's probably going to be some more attrition that still happens between now and spring ball. They already have basically 40-ish guys who are committed to joining the program or already enrolled in the program. Most of these guys are already on campus or they will be before spring football. That's a big thing that helps them kind of expedite their process. You can't have more than 85 scholarship players and – uh, ASU may also self-impose because of the, the the upcoming NCAA uh, infractions case. So they may even keep fewer than 85. Don't know exactly on that. Wouldn't be surprised if it's like 82, 83, 84 
as opposed to 85, maybe even 80. Um, but if they add more and they, they're still recruiting guys, it, it's probably going to be D-tackle, maybe a linebacker, maybe one more defensive back. Uh, and look, are they going to turn down a great player that falls in their lap at another position? No. You don't like just say, okay, we're not going to take an elite wide receiver or we're not going to take a starting offensive tackle or whatever. They will still figure out a way to make room for those guys. Uh, I think ultimately what you're going to see is a lot of the, the, the returning players um, who haven't transferred or whatever, they're going to, they're going to allow the spring to sort of show them where they are, where they're at, like on the depth chart and in terms of like how they're perceived by the staff and all that stuff. And then you may see another round of departures. So it may look a little bit um, crowded right now in terms of where they're at from a number standpoint, but there probably will be additional thinning and maybe a few more players that get added between now and the summer I quite frankly thought no way they were going to add 40 players by the by the second week of January. Uh, I thought that probably they'd be maybe around 30, low 30s, maybe 35, and then we would see maybe 10 more, uh, 8 to 10 or 12 at the most, maybe get added after spring football. But as it stands now, they really don't need a lot more work after spring ball. They're in a pretty good situation, and for – for how rebuilt the roster is, it's uh, and it seems like they have a little bit better chance to put a competitive team on the field than I would have expected following their worst, you know, three and nine, their worst season in modern history. Yeah, there's certainly a lot going on with ASU football. As we said, make sure to be on the lookout for the premium podcast. It's going to give you more in-depth stuff about football as there is a lot going on. You don't want to miss it because as we said, this is unprecedented. You're getting coverage that Sendable Source has never done before. So if there's a time to subscribe, it's now. Make sure that you're in touch with all of the breaking news that's coming out of the program and what the team might stand coming into the new season. But if you are someone that wants action going on right now, there's ASU basketball. There's also ASU hockey that Sendable Source is going to be covering for you. But we're going to go into ASU basketball basketball in regards to this podcast ASU basketball with Bobby Hurley is 13 and three so far this season and it's the first time since 2007 2008 which was the year before James Harden got to ASU that the team has been four and one started four and one in Pac-12 play so Noah we'll go to you first is this a surprise what the team's been doing so far this season and what has enabled them to do so right now this team has a pretty solidified identity uh, earlier in the season, we were still feeling out all of the talent that they had brought in. They had six new players, uh, scholarship newcomers, and there was a lot of differing performances that uh, we really couldn't project to, to see how this team was really going to play night in and night out. But recently, um, you know, we've really seen defense become the central force uh, for their success when they're playing extremely well winning games they are shut down on that end of the court. Um, they, bring, they bring a lot of length, um, both on the perimeter and the interior. And they're really, really good at getting tips, getting in passing lanes. Just they have really active hands um, on the defensive end overall. And obviously when you have a seven-footer, the players have talked about this um, on multiple occasions. Warren Washington, the senior center from Nevada, he transferred in and he's been – 
quite the rim protector for this defense inside. And when you have a guy like that that can anchor the defense, it really allows the perimeter players to funnel, uh, you know, offenses into him, uh, which can make it a lot easier to defend. So some of that has factored into being one of the better defenses, I'd say. They're pretty elite in certain categories, especially when it comes to two-point percentage. Right now, according to Ken Palm, they're fifth – they have the fifth two-point defense in the nation, and they're also pretty high up in some other categories there. But the the problems have come up when the defense hasn't been up to the standard, really, um, that they've set, and the offense has struggled to really find a groove uh, in most games this season. And uh, there's a lot that goes into that. Um, but I think for the most part, when you look at the game logs, when you watch the games, especially um, settling for three-point jump shots uh, has been a bane to their approach on that end of the court. And, you know, when you look at it, there's only three games this season that they have shot fewer than 23-pointers, and those games have been their most successful offensively. Um, one was the Michigan upset early on in the season when they scored 87 points. Another one was, albeit, against Northern, Northern Arizona, but they scored 84 in that game. And then their um, win against Washington State the other week, they also had fewer than 23-pointers. And that is just going to show how when they're able to become more balanced as an offense, not settle, find penetration lanes, and then from there be able to facilitate more you know, passing, more ball movement, that allows them to get more opportunities for guys like Warren Washington and some of those guys that don't necessarily rely on the three-point line. So, you know, there's, those are some of the things that have really stood out to me on the offensive and defensive end that, you know, both good and bad ASU has, has sort of displayed to this point in the season. Chris, are you surprised at what this roster has been able to do and what do you think has been enabling it? Well, a little bit. I think um, we, we had all of our sort of preseason – predictions that we put out um, two months ago or whenever that was. And none of us thought ASU would be a 20 win team uh, or clearly a 20 win team. And I now think ASU should win 20 plus games. So, um, and there are certain things in particular that have been a surprise to me. For example, Devin Cambridge's play, his overall production, his capability. That's, that's definitely been a surprise to me. He was, essentially sort of a, a seventh, eighth guy role player at Auburn. That's why he transferred. Uh, the, the What happened with Marcus Bagley, um, the tiff that he had with Bobby Hurley stepping away from the program, somebody needed to elevate. I think you can make a case that they might even be better off with Devin Cambridge than Marcus Bagley at this point. Sounds weird to say that, in my opinion. I, I don't know, but um, – what he does from a basketball IQ standpoint, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really understand. I thought he would be a rim runner, who good athlete, finish above the rim, uh, help you out, get some block shots and stuff from the from the weak side, rebound his position effectively. Didn't think he'd be out there hitting a bunch of threes and being maybe the best guy who moves without the basketball on the team, right? So. That's been a surprise. That's been one of the biggest factors to me in why they are where they're at right now. Um, defensively, it's clearly Hurley's best team that he's had in Tempe. The next best would be the Zylan Cheatham 
Lou Dort team, uh, they they were able to hang their hat on that end of the floor also. But this group has a, dare I say, great defense. Um, they have sort of trailed off a little bit and a couple, they had a couple of losses that San Francisco game got totally away from them. and was very atypical of what they've done so far this season. They had a bad half against Arizona. They, they came back from in the second half and put together a, a pretty respectable overall performance. Um, but they do a great job of contesting in and around the painted area. And uh, they do a very good job of making teams uh, have difficult looks at the basket from inside the three-point line pretty much anywhere. And they do that outside of the, that anomalous San Francisco, and they do that consistently very well. Um, and that is what has kept them in all these games. They've, had, they've, they've come back multiple times from double digits to win or, or to put themselves in position to win. Um, and even though, as Noah said, they, they haven't been a particularly good offensive team, uh, they still are one of Hurley's best teams, have a chance to be Hurley's best team, have a chance to be an NCAA tournament team. I am a little bit surprised that the three-point shooting hasn't been better from DJ Horn, Desmond Cambridge, right? We knew that Marcus Bagley would have been an important player for them from three, and Devin Cambridge is not uh, going to be somebody who looks that great shooting the basketball. But I thought they'd be better than they have been in that regard. And maybe maybe they are sort of below what is the their average. And maybe so they have the ability to come out and start shooting the ball better uh, Noah touched on some of the things they have to do. I know we're going to get into more depth on that. So, but uh, this is a positive surprise, and it is something that now has them in a very good footing as they move into the final less than two months of the the regular season before you get to uh, you know maybe an NCAA tournament or an IT tournament. You just spoke about their consistency, and and thirteen and three means they've been pretty consistent. There's been at times, as you said, some performances that maybe weren't the best performance that ASU have put out there. But Noah, what does this team have to do to finish strong and make sure they're consistently putting out performances that puts a win in the win column rather than a loss in a loss column? Chris mentioned um, one thing that you know sort of took him aback was DJ Horn, Desmond Cambridge, their struggles from the three point line. I think. The, the way in which they get those shots has hurt them, uh, at least to this point. Um, you know, oftentimes you'll find them taking three-point shots off the dribble uh, in contested situations as opposed to uh, spot-up catch-and-shoot opportunities. They definitely get those, and sometimes they miss as well. But, um, but really, uh, I feel like as far as shot selection, judging them versus the rest of the team, they're probably – the two guys who are most prone to uh, put up some questionable shots. And even, even Desmond uh, owned up to that in, in one of the press conferences this season. So that I think has been one of the things that I talked about earlier in the season is something that they really need to hone in on um, and, and for Hurley to potentially rein in. But um, it, you know, I, I feel like while that's something that I can, that can elevate them offensively, it's not something I expect them to do because um by most accounts, the players are given quite the freedom uh, on offense to to take their shots, find their spots, and 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 
do what they want in that in that sense without really having a whole lot of um, punishments or like worry about, you know, getting yelled at for a bad shot or anything like that. So I, I feel like that's going to be a limiting factor um, as the season progresses. We've already seen, uh, you know, an inability for them to be to be good um, consistently, you know, at putting points up. And I just I don't see that getting better because I feel like that is the most important thing that is holding them back, um, you know, from top to bottom as a team to be able to go up and get good shots and put them down through the hoop. Um, so moving forward, that, that, you know, that seems to be the thing that I'm hoping will change, but not necessarily expecting to based on, you know, what we've heard uh, from the players, um, especially. If you, if you don't think that's going to change, Noah, is there anything that they could do that might impact that problem or minimize that problem in, in any way? Yes. So basically, if you're going to try to work around that, you have to play to your strengths. And I think that we've seen them do that a little bit more recently, especially with these last couple of wins in the Pac-12. Um, being able to funnel the ball inside and out. Um, Chris has talked about this on past podcasts especially, but it, it makes sense because when you, got, you have guys – like Warren Washington, Devin Cambridge down there, you can work through them more, get them more touches and be able to still have those other guys on the perimeter who want to score involved. It just doesn't need to be through a pick and roll isolation type um, opportunity. And so, you know, if you're going to take some bad shots, let's just work it around. I think the one thing that I could see them doing is accidentally finding better shots by just getting the ball to those guys more often. Right. And not having it be every time down floor, you know, giving it to one of the guys, whether it's Frankie Collins, DJ Horn or Desmond Cambridge and saying it's your turn. You go to work. You know, I think shying away from that and sort of leaning into, you know, getting another guy a touch, you know, more consistently like a Warren Washington will allow them to sort of stumble upon some better opportunities offensively, just naturally, you know, through the flow of the offense. And I think that's one workaround from, you know, I, I guess just the culture that has been set uh, with with this with this program guard you, you know, having that sort of freelance freedom um, to have those guys, you know, go and be able to take the shots that they want. Yeah. If anyone's seen any of the tweets that Chris has put out, even through all of the football nonsense and mayhem that's been going on, you've seen the name Warren Washington. So, Chris, I'll go to you. What things do they have to do to finish strong? Yeah. So. Look. This is a team that's very unlike Bobby Hurley's other teams, and yet they're they're still playing like those teams on the offensive end of the floor to their detriment. They had plenty of other teams where they didn't have a seven-foot big man who was highly skilled and able to pass the ball effectively, score both, both hands around the rim. Um, and so – when you play an up and down style of ball where you so heavily rely on a three point shot and you have a lot of good shooters, it's okay to take more shots that are not as high quality. But when you're the style that is best for ASU is to try to create offense with your defense, which they can do. And when they're at their best, they are doing like in the second half against Arizona or like, uh, most impressively, like what they did against Washington in the second half, um, scoring 40-something points and all these seven dunks that Devin Cambridge had, right? But when you aren't doing that, 
you have to have an extremely high appreciation for the value of every half court possession. And they don't have enough of an appreciation for the value of every single half court possession in those types of games. And Warren Washington to get to what you're talking about there, he has the lowest usage rate of any of the pretty good or better bigs in the Pac-12. And yet he also is one of the best scorers, one of the has high, one of the highest per ratings and is maybe the best passer of all of those players. Okay? Like he's not elite, he's not as good as like Arizona's two big men or whatever. But after that, after those guys, he's solidly in the in the picture among the the better bigs in the conference. And when you have a guy like that, who by the way hit eight straight field goals in the first half two games ago, right? And then got what did he get? Two field goal attempts in the second half of the game, right? It it shows you that they aren't making it enough of an emphasis to be able to get the ball inside to him and inside to Devin Cambridge to what Noah said, who also has shown the ability to do some good things in and around uh, the basket. And also Frankie Collins, who I think is probably the second most important player, or maybe the first most important player, him and Warren Washington and in some combination. And then maybe Devin Cambridge and uh, Desmond Cambridge and DJ Horn after them. Um, Frankie Collins has to be determined to try to sift his way to the interior to get pass outs because that's another opportunity when you get some quality three-point shots right now their three-point shots are not of a high enough quality for the caliber of a shooting team that they are and they take too many three-pointers the ball needs to be in Warren Washington's hands more on the interior Devin Cambridge as much as possible and Frankie Collins needs to be getting the ball inside and out and then you need to be able to attack zones and creative defenses a little bit better than they are. If they can do all those things together, they have a chance to maximize the potential for this team. I just want to add one more quick thing. We're talking really about half-court offense because that seems to be the, the biggest limitation for this team. But I think one thing you can just rely on, right, is for how good of a defense they've had, that has led to quite a few transition opportunities. Um, and when they are on the fast break, they have been like good to great. Like because of the athleticism they have, you know, you always have the lob opportunities, but even the guards are able to essentially finish on their own um, in those situations as well. That That is something that I think, you know, oftentimes you see their offense really taking a step up. It's just about when teams force them into half-court offensive sets, which is going to be the better teams in the Pac-12, like in Arizona, like a UCLA, maybe even Utah, which is playing really well right now, right? That is going to be the hump that they have to get over, and, that, and that's why we're spending so much time on it. Yeah, certainly a lot to talk about in regarding ASU basketball, but let's go to what's next up for them in Oregon on the road, Noah. What do we know right now about the Ducks that could either cause problems or could be something ASU could take advantage of? Yeah, so the, the Ducks this season have been um, 
looking at their resume, it, it's hard to gauge. Like you can't just look at their record and and solely judge them off of that because right now they're nine and seven. They've yet to get to tw- ten wins, but that isn't really representative of you know the talent this team has and how good it can be by the end of the season because they had a really tough non-conference uh, schedule. And in terms of the strength, it was 23rd in the net rankings. And they had three straight losses really early on that that sort of, you know, skewed their record against uh, Houston, which was number three at the time, UConn number 20 and, and Michigan State number 12. Really tough, tough games that they that they dropped. Since then, they've or from that point, they were able to win four of their last five non-conference games and are now three and two in, the, in conference play. And so. A lot of that has had to do with with the returning starters that they've gotten. So they still have Will Richardson, who was their leading scorer from a season ago. They brought back in Folly Dante is a former five-star prospect. He started last year as well. Um, really big guy, interior presence in the, in the middle. And they also have a forward uh, in, in Quincy Guerrier who helps sort of anchor down the front court with Dante. Now, one of the things that's also held them back Right. Even given those guys, the the kind of offensive production that they've provided and sort of the veteran presence, they brought in some newcomers. Um, Washington State senior guard Jermaine Cuisinart. He he was supposed to be one of the guys that you insert into the starting lineup. um, And he has not been, you know, as active of a contributor because of a knee surgery he had early in the season. Um, There's another guy from Colorado, Keyshawn Bartholomew. He missed some games with a left foot injury. And then uh, Brennan Rigsby as well, who's a Juco guy, but has actually averaged 30 minutes in the games he has played. They've all been limited due to injury. With that said, in this upcoming game against ASU, recent reports have um, indicated that they actually might have 11 of their 12 scholarship guys for the first time this season. And so when this team is healthy, they can be dangerous. Right now, they're number 58 in Ken Palm standings. Um, That is good generally. But for Altman, Dana Altman, it's his 13th season there in Eugene. Only four of his teams have finished outside of the top 50. So really right now they're underachieving from where, you know, the standard is for Altman at Oregon. Um, But it's still early on. And I have a feeling that they're going to make a push here or they could uh, in the conference. With Richardson, they they really rely on him. He plays a whole ton of minutes. Uh, Aaron Brooks, Joe Young, and Peyton Pritchard right now, those are alums. They're the only three players in the last two two decades who've concluded a season with more minutes. He averages 36.4 per game, and he is essentially the floor general. He scores a lot of points. He's also upped his uh, distribution numbers as a playmaker this year, and, and the offense really runs through him. Given that, they're also posing a lot of size that has resulted in a lot of block shots and um, second chance opportunities. So those are their that's probably their biggest strength offensively outside of Richardson. They're not very good. Uh, they don't really shoot the ball well <laughs> from, from the three point line, even worse actually uh, than ASU. If you can believe that uh, ASU fans, but uh, right now that's essentially what they've relied on. When you have a guy like Dante Gurrier, they even have um, Kaleo Ware, who uh, was a highly touted recruit in this up in this previous class. They have a lot of size and they use that pretty well. They're, Right now, in terms of average height, they're the second biggest team in the nation. And so that, that's really something to keep an eye on. Um, and that really has sort of fueled second chance opportunities for them on the offensive end. And, and they really have been able to use their length on the defensive end as one. And on top of that, it's not often that you have some teams like that 
that are able to to defend without fouling. And uh, as, as far as the free throws attempted for field, per field goals attempted, they allow per game, they're 20th in the country, and, and they do a really good job at that. And so they're disciplined on that end of the floor is essentially what I'm trying to say. But right now, this Oregon team, they have underperformed relative to expectations, but they have the pieces um, to really be able to improve uh, and play better than the first half of the season has really indicated. Chris, Noah says that it might be kind of a sleeping giant with the injuries and stuff, but what do you know that he may didn't cover about ASU's next opponent? Well, what he didn't say that is most important is that Oregon has maybe the best defensive approach in the conference. They do a lot of extended three-quarter court trapping defense, zone defense, hybrid defense. You can't figure out exactly what it is. It's hard to replicate, hard to simulate. And the net effect of these zone defenses are they tend to they tend to do a good job in transition, presenting preventing the types of opportunities ASU needs to be successful, and then also they uh, force you to delay entry into your offense in a way that forces more late shot clock poor shots. So that is not a good recipe for ASU because as we've been talking about. ASU needs to get more transition and not be as challenged in the half court. So how they resolve that is is very much going to have a huge uh, impact on the outcome of this game. And yet there are some things about this, as Noah said, that bode very well for ASU, primarily that Oregon is a terrible shooting team, even worse than ASU, from the perimeter, which is uh, – ASU's worst, and ASU's still pretty good at it, but ASU's, you know, least good capability on that end of the floor. So um, I think one of the very most important keys in this game is second chance opportunities that Oregon gets because that's where ASU's kind of had a weakness. They've had a little bit of an Achilles heel on that, on that element, and it is one of Oregon's best strengths. I would say, and most important thing, at least on the offense end of the floor. I kind of anticipate this will be a low-scoring game that's a two-possession game with the final score somewhere around, you know, high 60s or something like that. Um, Oregon is much better than its record. Um, very, very difficult schedule to this point, um, as Noah said, and, and yet also did lose at home to UC Irvine and to Utah Valley. Uh, and the, 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 the latter of which was in like three weeks ago. So, and, and there, when you shoot the 29% from three and you, and you rely so heavily on second chance opportunities and your defense locking up opponents, it creates situations where you can really struggle if your opponent shoots the ball. Well, it's just that ASU doesn't tend to shoot the ball. Well, so, but this game is super, super, super important because ASU is like uh, in this tier with Oregon and Colorado and Utah and, and USC and Washington State and wins against those teams in particular are super valuable. Certainly should be an interesting game to watch and an interesting matchup that, as you said, is a pretty big test for ASU in terms of where they sit with the 13 and three record they have right now. But we've talked a lot about 
what has happened, what could happen. But let's talk a little bit about the NCAA tournament, Noah. What are the odds that ASU makes the tournament and what needs to happen for that to materialize? Yeah, you know, I've I've been seeing some things about how the Pac-12 um, will perform in terms of getting teams into the NCAA tournament. As of right now, um, Joe Lenardi, ESPN's uh, latest bracketology, um, had ASU and Utah um, as part of the first four out. Uh, it's still really early, but just for some perspective, ASU and Utah right now are in like the second and third spots in the conference. Um, and so Arizona, UCLA, uh, two ranked teams, UCLA is number seven country, Arizona is number nine. Those are two programs that are expected to get in beyond that point it's kind of up in the air and there's a lot of, you know, moving pieces that could bode in favor of adding one or two more PAC 12 teams. Um, I, I just feel like ASU to keep their chances uh, promising to stay within the top four uh, teams in the PAC 12. Um, the last time the PAC 12 only had two teams make the NCAA tournament was 20. 11, 2012 is when the Pac-10 went to Pac-12. Um, and so it really hasn't happened that often. And, um, you know, it, it's very possible that even if they aren't able to beat opponents like UCLA and Arizona, they can still be able to hover uh, just, you know, trailing behind them. It's just uh, they would have to continue to beat the teams that, you know, they are capable of beating. And, and, you know, those are the teams that they have already played right now. A lot of them, at least with Colorado, Washington State, Washington. Um, and, you know, it's going to be interesting to see when they play some of those other teams um, in the conference, because as this conference schedule, you know, sort of shakes out, the, the difficulty of, of this sort of slate is something that has worn on past Hurley teams. And uh, right now it's, it's a fast start. And, and it's looking promising. It's just that they have to really stay close uh, towards the top of the Pac-12 because right now it looks like there's at least projections early on that it could be more limited uh, in terms of spots uh, for that conference this year than in previous years. Chris, what are your thoughts on the chances for Bobby Hurley and this roster to make the tournament? Well, I think they have a pretty decent chance, um, but it's – it's not going to be unless something crazy happens. It's going to be close one way or the other. It's I don't think it's going to be like oh yeah, obviously they're in the tournament. Like, and it's probably not going to be yeah, they're definitely out of the tournament. And that's why every game matters so much. You look at the Pac-12 right now, and outside of Arizona and UCLA, which are both um, you know in the top ten teams in the net rankings or ratings, whatever they call them, um, you have. Six teams, as I said, Utah, ASU, Colorado, Oregon, Washington State, and USC in order. They are between 47 and 74 in the net. And you are probably not going to get too many teams that are at large in the NCAA tournament that are outside like the low 50s. You know, it, it's it's – I've, you know, net is more more of a newer thing than RPI and whatever. But um, so you know, you don't have as many years of data to go by. But usually, it, it, that that in the 40s is kind of where you want to be to have any sort of comfort. 
going into that selection Sunday. And so right now, ASU is 58th. So that's, that's right now, they're like, that would be very much on the bubble. And Utah is 47th. So the, the, as I mentioned, Oregon is in that tier with ASU. Well, ASU already beat Colorado. They'll play them again. They haven't played Utah yet. They'll play Utah at home. That's an advantage. They have Oregon. And you don't want to lose to the other teams within your conference, especially when it has the ability to be quad one win. You don't want to – those are those games, they become so important. And ASU is two and one in, in quad one and um, two and one in quad two and four and zero in quad three. They have the really bad loss at Texas Southern as a quad four loss. That those games, like if ASU had just won that game and everything else was the same about the schedule, ASU probably would be somewhere in the high forties right now. Like I would say, ten spots probably higher. So, although losing to to Oregon wouldn't necessarily be a bad loss in terms of how that's viewed or how much of a hit that is to the net. Um, a loss to Oregon State absolutely would be because Oregon State is 223 right now in the net. So Oregon State really is, even though it's a road game, that's a must-win game that ASU is going to play following up on Oregon. But if ASU can somehow get beat Oregon – and Oregon State get a road sweep, very rare, only happens, you know, once every five years or so, probably on average, uh, in ASU historically, gets them to six and one in the conference. That puts them into a tremendous overall situation uh, with some sort of a buffer, if you will, when they then play UCLA at home, USC at home. Like, you can lose to UCLA at home, no problem uh, in that scenario. USC, that's probably another team that you got to win because remember they're also in that 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 same sort of six uh, category. And then if ASU can get a a split on the road when they go to the Washington schools, and they can get a a at least a split when they go to Stanford and Cal, which. You know, it's not it's not a gimme, but they should be able to do that. And then if they can win at home, a home save against Colorado, Utah, and the last three games are the hardest stretch at Arizona, at UCLA, at USC. But maybe, maybe pull maybe get one of those games, or maybe not even any one of those games. They could end up still 13 and 7, uh, which I think is probably what they're gonna need to do to have a lot of confidence that they're going to be in the NCAA tournament 12 and eight that probably puts them on the bubble. And that's, that might not sound like it should be the case, but that's probably the reality of the situation. And so when you're sitting at four and one and you're looking at it and you go, okay, there's 15 more games or whatever left in the schedule. Well, uh, ASU might need to win 10 of those 15 games to be feeling good about its position with the NCAA tournament. And Bobby Hurley, as you know, uh, he's never made it to the NCAA tournament at ASU. That wasn't among the first four, which a lot of people are like, oh, okay, like are you even really in the tournament <laughs> at that point? You know, it's sort of like people don't really pay attention as much until you get into the 64. So um, there's a lot of work yet to be done. And the key thing 
is every single game has so much importance. And that's something that from her experience has to be drilled into the player so that they understand it and there's no lapses throughout this remaining uh, two months. Well, if you've learned anything from this basketball segment of the podcast, it's that it's going to continue to be a really interesting season to follow and the team's going to continue to be fun to watch and it might seesaw to the end and whether they'll be in the tournament or not. So make sure to stay tuned to all of our content at Sun Devil Source as the basketball season continues. We've jammed a lot of information into this podcast because we haven't had one in a little bit. We didn't have one over the holidays, as we talked about earlier. And because of everything that's happening in football, if we recorded a podcast, there was very high odds that it would have been completely outdated as soon as we recorded it. It might have been news during the podcast. And as we posted it, there may have been more news as well. So make sure to be on the lookout for a premium podcast that's going to be coming your way where we're going to unpack Mostly a lot of the football stuff that we talked about in this podcast. So if you want more in-depth information, make sure to tune in to that premium podcast. But for now, that's it for this edition of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast for Chris Cartman and Noah Furtado. I'm Ethan Ryder. Thanks for listening. We'll see you.